I was working on this episode yesterday about the greatest natural disaster to ever hit Alaska and then woke up this morning to another massive natural disaster hitting Anchorage. This morning at 8.30 a.m., Alaska was rocked by a 7.0 magnitude earthquake. Now, Alaska gets around 34,000 earthquakes a year. So this number isn't out of the ordinary to get that large of an earthquake, but oftentimes they hit in remote places where they don't really affect a lot of people. Today, however, it hit just a few miles north of Anchorage, so we all felt it intensely. I was jolted awake by my dog jumping into my arms and my house shaking like you wouldn't believe. Pretty much anything that was on a shelf fell off into a massive pile. But thankfully, nobody was hurt, neither myself or our animals or any of my family members. And the only real damage that my parents' house received was a thick glass decorative item fell onto their sink and just broke a hole straight through the porcelain. So that was pretty bizarre, but everything else that got damaged was basically random stuff that fell off shelves and can be replaced. I'm just thankful that nobody was hurt and it appears that there weren't any major injuries or fatalities in Anchorage as far as we know. There was however a lot of damage to the roads. One overpass collapsed entirely and I saw an estimate saying that there might be upwards of a billion dollars in damage so that's pretty crazy and I'm so thankful that nobody was really hurt. I spent the first hour and a half of the day crouched under the kitchen table with my mom and our three dogs because we kept getting aftershocks every 20 to 30 minutes the biggest of which was nearly a 6.0. And I actually got an aftershock just as I started recording this, and it's several hours since the earthquake. So if you've never experienced an earthquake, that's just a bizarre part of it. So many great people out there contacted me to make sure I was okay, and you guys are so sweet for thinking of me, and we're fine. We've got internet back now. We didn't have internet or power for about an hour or two, but it's all back now and it's all good. And all we really have to do now is clean up the broken glass. And just by coincidence, I had just started working on this episode about the Great Alaska Good Friday Earthquake of 1964. And that was the one I was scheduled to work on today. So it kind of works out. But before we get into that, I just wanted to say thank you to all my Patreons. You guys are super motivating. And a special thanks to my newest patron, Peggy, who signed on at the highest level. Thank you so much, Peggy. You are my new favorite person. 
all patrons that sign up by December 15th are going to be getting some Christmas goodies from me. And if you were around for the Halloween boxes I sent out, you know that it's going to be something good. Patrons also have access to the bonus episodes that are up now. And the next bonus episode will be coming up within the next two or three days. So look for that one. If you'd like to become a patron, simply visit patreon.com slash midnightsunmurder or click the link in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show in a different way, you can always tell a friend, share an episode, or leave a five-star review. And I appreciate all of you that have done so. And without further ado, let's get into the episode. If you live somewhere where earthquakes aren't a normal part of life for you, let me give you a very brief explanation of what causes them. Earthquakes are caused when two tectonic plates collide with one another, and the energy causes seismic waves which shake the Earth. The place where they collide is the fault line, and the area directly above the collision is called the epicenter, where it will be felt the strongest. Earthquakes are measured using the Richter scale, which measures the magnitude of each earthquake. The explanation for the way it's measured is much more scientific than I prefer to go into, but luckily it's based on a scale of 10, so it's easy to figure out that 10 equals the world is falling apart, and 1 equals unnoticeable flutter. However, no earthquake above a 9.5 has ever been recorded in history. The 9.5 happened in Chile in 1960 and killed an estimate of between 2 and 7,000 people. Death tolls from earthquakes are often a combination of people that died during the initial shaking and those that died during the resultant tsunami, which can often wreak much greater havoc on the community. These occur after earthquakes with an epicenter close to the ocean floor, and the tsunami itself is created by a large displacement of water caused by the quake. For those of you that clearly remember the 2004 Indian Ocean quake and tsunami, that was caused by an 8.3 quake and resulted in casualties of hundreds of thousands of people. While some did die during the quake itself, most died as a result of the massive tsunami, which rose as high as 100 feet in some areas. And that was the third largest earthquake ever recorded. I'm sure you most, most of you remember the 2011 quake and tsunami in Japan. That was the fourth largest quake and caused a tsunami which rose upwards of 130 feet. And this led to around 15 to 20,000 casualties. A mega thrust earthquake is what happens when one tectonic plate goes under another, causing a massive release of energy. These types of earthquakes tend to have a Richter scale of around 9.0 and are obviously incredibly rare. Today, I'm going to tell you about the Great Alaska Earthquake, which was a megathrust earthquake measuring at 9.2 and was the second largest earthquake ever recorded. Just around dinner time, on March 27, 1964, which was Good Friday that year, the ground began to shake and it didn't stop for 4.5 minutes. It started at an epicenter around 80 miles from Anchorage and moved across the state going around 100 miles per hour. 
The power released during this earthquake was the equivalent of four million Hiroshima atom bombs. Four million. The ground in Anchorage shook so hard that it caused much of the ground soil to actually liquefy, and many of those unlucky enough to have a house on a slope would see their house go sliding off into the water or down a hill, crumbling into pieces along the way. Downtown Anchorage suffered a lot of damage to buildings and streets. 75 houses were destroyed in one downtown neighborhood alone due to landslides. There were some buildings that just completely collapsed. Thankfully, however, no tsunami hit Anchorage. Other coastal towns would not be so lucky. Several miles of the highway heading south out of Anchorage sank down low enough for the ocean to completely flood a 20-mile stretch. Around 50 miles south of Anchorage, the town of Girdwood was nearly completely destroyed. They had to completely rebuild it about three miles inland. If you drive to Girdwood today, you can still see old buildings that are slowly collapsing into the marsh on the ocean side of the highway. On the other side of the mountain from Girdwood is a tiny port town of Whittier, which was hit by a nearly 50-foot high wave that killed 13 people. A few miles down the road from Girdwood was the town of Portage. The town sank about 10 feet below sea level and was completely flooded and destroyed. It was never rebuilt. Residents that escaped with their lives later told of how the ground had broken up by wide fissures and how the small section of earth they were standing on would go jolting up and down. They equated it to riding in an open elevator. Portage is now a ghost town and popular tourist attraction. The port town of Valdez, Alaska, which had around 500 people at the time, is around 300 miles east of Anchorage, and it was hit by a 30-foot wave from the tsunami. This caused an underwater landslide that killed 32 people when the large freight dock they were standing on was destroyed. A large section of the shoreline completely sank into the ocean. That area would later be abandoned and the town was moved further inland, about four miles. And if you happen to recognize the name of the town of Valdez, it may be because of the massive Exxon Valdez oil spill that happened there in 1989. Strangely enough, this incident also occurred on a Good Friday, 25 years after the earthquake. That 30-foot wave completely destroyed a nearby small village called Chaniga, it killed one-third of its 68 residents. Those that survived only did so because they could run fast. Many survivors moved away, but those who remained set up a new town site in a different location. Many, many other small native villages were destroyed or nearly destroyed and had to be rebuilt or relocated. Communities from British Columbia all the way down to LA experienced damage. Canada actually experienced damages totaling around 80 million in today's dollars, while the U.S. damage costs would end up being around the equivalent of 2.3 billion dollars. Effects of the quake on the ocean were felt as far away as Hawaii, Texas, and Florida. 
Thankfully, at the time, as Alaska had only been a state for a few years and was incredibly sparsely populated with around, only around 230,000 people, the death toll was very limited to around 120 casualties in Alaska, most of which were due to the tsunami. This also caused 20 more casualties in Oregon and California. And these relatively low numbers are in no doubt attributed to the fact that it was March and was not yet the busy time for the Pacific Coast beach towns. At that time, my mother was six years old and living in a small town in Alaska called Anchor Point, while my dad was nine and lived on the coast of Oregon. They both have clear memories of the earthquake and wanted to personally share them. So without further ado, here are their stories. My dad was born and raised in Seaside, Oregon. Shortly after he married my mom, they moved to Crescent City, California, where my older brother and I were both born. A few years after that, he decided to move back to Seaside, Oregon. In 1964, March, Good Friday, he woke my brother and me up in the middle of the night and said, we gotta go, there's a tidal wave. And my brother and I, we had no idea what he was talking about. I was nine, my brother was 10. And so we got dressed and we went out and we got in the truck. Um, I did notice that it was, it was kind of odd is that the truck was parked in our neighbor's front yard and my dad had to bring it around and in front of the house. And we took off and drove to my grandmother's house where we spent the rest of the night. I found out later from him is that he woke up in the middle of the night and heard something, and he asked my, gave my mom an elbow and woke her up and said, hey, what does one siren blast mean? And she replied, well, that means it's a tidal wave, and then rolled over to go back to sleep. He did kind of a mental double take, if you will, and said, tidal wave? Holy hell, tidal wave? Jumped up, ran outside in his underwear, and he said it was really calm, really still, and there's this wail of a siren going on. No, no action, no nothing. And he looked down the street both ways and saw nothing to the south and looked to the north. He said he saw something moving under the street lights, and he didn't have his glasses on. So he couldn't really tell just what it was until it got closer. And he was really surprised. He was like, holy crap. And, it, and then he did kind of a Superman dive in the back of his truck just instants before a wave of water hit the back of his truck and saluted around in the street. And as soon as, it, as soon as it stopped moving, he climbed out the back, waded to the front of the cab, got in, and then drove up and parked in our neighbor's yard, which was a couple feet higher than our yard. Now, remember, the keys were in it because this was the early 60s, and you could do that back then. But anyway, he came back in the house got everybody awake, we got dressed and hustled us out and took off to my grandmother's house. Now, nobody back then had any idea about tsunamis or any of that sort of stuff. It's like, okay, the wave hit, it's done, it's gone, so it's no big deal. Well, the next day was my brother and I, was, you know, we went up to the beach. We was like, well, what's going on up here? So I went up to the beach, nothing there, no action, nothing. It was town was just dead quiet. And over the course of the next few days, we discovered really what had happened. And, and what happened was 
the the tsunami surge came in. It didn't come up and and crest over the beach and hit houses or anything. But what it did do, it it pushed the river, uh, the Nicanicum River, pushed it back upstream. A major, uh, uh, I guess a, a a wave came up the river as as the tsunami came up the river, and that's what my dad saw. Now it was really kind of interesting is if the thing had been a little bit higher, maybe an inch or so higher, it would have come into our house. But it didn't quite make it into our house. Our neighbors immediately to the north of us, their house was a little bit lower than ours, and it had an older retired couple living in it. And I guess the wife, she woke up, and she's kind of like, hey, it smells like ocean in here. And kind of nudged her husband, and he rolled over out of bed, and there was a big splash because there was ocean in their bedroom. And so they, they ended up doing something. I, don't, I never did find out what they ended up doing. And then uh, our neighbors to the north of us, uh, I, don't, I don't think they were even in town, but I remember the next few days or weeks after that, there was a whole lot of mud had been deposited in, uh, in their garage and carport. It was like in it half an inch to an inch thick and I remember it slowly dried out and turned into like a you know like a, a pottery kind of looking thing it was really kind of interesting looking and our yard we had a pivot a, a picket fence around it and it acted like a big strainer um, all this water with debris there was there was grass there was weeds there was trash all this stuff had come into our yard and then when the water went out, uh, the fence kind of acted like a big strainer. So there was all this junk in our yard that my brother and I were tasked with cleaning up over the next few days. But one of the, the biggest bits of damage that occurred in town was the 4th Avenue Bridge. There was, there was a 12th Avenue Bridge, a 4th Avenue Bridge, and then a Broadway Bridge. And the 12th Avenue Bridge was a steel and concrete structure. The Broadway Bridge was a concrete structure. And the 4th Avenue Bridge was a very old wooden structure. Well, the wave was big enough, it knocked that thing down and broke it into sections. Some sections went up to hit the Broadway Bridge and broke apart on that. And I remember one large section stayed in the river for years as kind of a floating dock, if you will. And uh, so that kind of stuck with me. And like I, I mentioned earlier, I was born in Crescent City, California. That was the hardest hit town on the west coast. There was a lot of other communities that got hit with damage, uh, but Crescent City, apparently the bottom of the ocean uh, in front of town is configured such that if a tsunami comes from almost any direction, it focuses right in town. And they had a whole lot of houses uh, knocked down, caused fires, there was people drowned, there was people crushed by debris, there was a whole bunch of stuff. So the town I was born into, it, it got pretty dramatically transformed. Uh, and, and then I guess, you know, just a few years ago, they had that Japan tsunami that caused a bunch more damage to them. So they're kind of prone to it, I guess. But anyway, fast forward a few years from the Good Friday earthquake, uh, we moved to Alaska in 1966, then I moved to Anchorage in 1970. And I met a, you know, it was a bunch of kids I met going to school in Anchorage. And one of them, he was telling me that when the earthquake occurred, uh, they, they, he ran out of his house and was running for the street. And then he realized he left a dog or something in the house. And he turned back to go get it. And he said his house was gone. <laughs> 
It was that quick. Uh, he had a pair of cross-country skis leaning up against the front of his house. One ski was left. It had fallen towards the street. The other one had gone with the house. And this, he was living in an area called Turnigan, and that whole area kind of turned into a hill, and everything went, everything slid down the hill. Uh, they didn't recover anything from their house. It was gone. But he says he could remember seeing, you know, cracks open and close in the street and the ground around there, and it was pretty scary. But fortunately, he didn't get hurt. Can't say that for, for other folks that were in town. And so that's pretty much my, my recollection and connection to the great 64 earthquake. One thing interesting about Alaskans is they're very proud of how long they've lived in this state. Whenever we are introduced to someone like at church or through a friend or anywhere, a party, um, one of the first things that come up in conversation is, how long have you been in Alaska? It's definitely a badge of honor, like how long you've been here. I guess it just shows how tough you are if you've made it past 20 years. Anything under 20 years is not very impressive. Over 20 years, you're starting to get some pretty good street cred for an Alaskan. My folks came up in 1959 uh, when it was still a territory. It wasn't even a state yet, so that gives me quite a bit of... Uh, bragging rights. I was in my mother's arms at the time, and they were in the state. They had only been in the, well, the territory. They had only been there a few months when it was recognized as a state, and my mother and father recall that very vividly because it was really a big deal to have another state introduced to the Union. And uh, one thing that brought folks up to Alaska back in 1959 was either the military or just the desire to reinvent yourself or perhaps you had some ghost you were running from or, you know, some sort of uh, past that you didn't want people to know about. My mother commented years later that she ended up meeting a lot of people that she was suspicious that they had come up here to get away from some dark past, but you wouldn't really probe that out of someone too much because... Well, if they have a dark past, maybe you don't want to know what it is. Well, my folks came up uh, because of the military. My dad was in the Air Force, and their method for arriving in the state was to take the uh, Trans-Canadian Highway, which had been completed during the 40s. It was a pretty new highway, but when I say highway, it's it was a two-lane gravel uh mud hole mess that uh, potholes, hardly any um, gas stations along the way, hardly any restaurants. Um, I mean, basically, it took my parents two weeks to make their way up in a um, fairly new Dodge, but it did not have mud tires. It did not have front-wheel drive. It didn't have four-wheel drive. It just had whatever cars had back in the 50s. Took them, um, they had three children with them, a dog, uh, lots of gas cans strapped up on the roof, a tent, and lots and lots of Vienna sausage and crackers because literally there was hardly any place to eat along the way. And uh, no hotels that my mother recalled. 
About every 200 miles, there was a wooden platform on the side of the highway, and if you were lucky enough to stop there before some other traveler, you could pitch your tent up on the wooden platform, and I'm not sure what they thought you were safe from because a canvas tent's not going to protect you from bears, and there's a lot of bears on the highway. Uh, one trip I took in my motorhome, I counted 33 black bears and one large brown bear that was getting ready to eat a baby black bear, but that's another story. And so they were just in a tent with children, very small children, and bless their hearts, they were pioneers by heart for sure. I felt nervous in my motorhome with these bears just right outside my window. But they made their way up into the state of Alaska and uh, stationed out of Anchorage at Elmendorf Air Force Base. And um, after my dad put in his time with the military, he got the bright idea that he wanted to be a homesteader. Now, at that time, Alaska was desperate to populate their state. So they were literally giving away free land. Um, one section of land is 640 acres. Somehow my dad got 2,000 acres, so that's quite a few sections of land. I think he might have put them in the names of my mother and my siblings. And all you had to do was live on the land and have a habitable dwelling within three years. And if you're still there after five years, it was your land to keep. So my parents thought that was a great idea. And so they headed down the road south of Anchorage to a little town called Anchor Point. If you look on the map, you might not find it, but it's right above Homer. Homer is one of the most beautiful towns in all of Alaska, and 20 miles above is a little town called Anchor Point, and that's where my family settled, and that's where we were during the 64 earthquake. Um, my folks did get a little cabin up in the Caribou Hills built. It was something like Davy Crockett would live in or Daniel Boone, was one room with the loft, had a little creek running right beside it, had its own coal deposit. So we had coal for our little stove we had in there. We had water, um, no phone by any stretch of the imagination, a propane lantern to see by. And um, so that's where we were living. But for reasons I do not know, at the time that the earthquake struck, we were actually renting a small house in town, and I use the word town lightly because maybe there was 200 people there at the time in the entire surrounding area. Uh, this little house was perched upon about a 300-foot bluff. Uh, it overlooked the Cook Inlet Ocean, which beautiful, beautiful view. And it was in this house that we were staying, which both of my parents have passed, so I can't ask them why were we there, but I just know that's where we were at. And it was March, Good Friday, late afternoon. I was taking a nap. I was annoyed that as five years old, my mom was making me lay down and take a nap. But I was laying on a little metal bed, a little twin bed, and... Suddenly, the bed kind of started jumping around, and it was kind of like a scene out of The Exorcist, which, of course, I had not seen at that point in my life. The 
the bedroom door started opening and shutting extremely violently. Also, I believe, a scene from The Exorcist. And the thing I recall most is my mother had a beautiful blonde um, golden guitar that was hanging on a hook on the back of the door. And I watched as the guitar fell, hit the floor, and I was yelling for my mom because it was pretty terrifying. And she ran in, and I remember her very uh, quickly looking down at the floor and making the comment, oh, my guitar's broke. And that's pretty much my main personal memory. Now, as years had uh, passed from that point, my mother would tell lots of stories about what she remembered, and she did have enough sense to tell my brother and sister to get away from the large plate glass window, which looked out over the bluffs. They were playing sword fighting with broomsticks or something, and she thought, that window's going to break. And so she made them get away from the window very quickly. And my younger brother was sitting in a high chair in the kitchen, and this story became folklore with time. A large um, cast iron skillet fell off a hook above his head and fell missing the top of his little noggin by inches and crashed to the floor. And my mother would say, oh, my goodness, we almost lost Joe during the 64 earthquake, but we did not. He was fine. It just whizzed right past him. And my dad was out of town working at the time down in the Swanson oil fields. His memory was the trees were just whipping back and forth so violently that the tops of the trees were literally making the letter U, you know, but, well, no, not the letter U, the letter N. They would whip and hit one, one side of the earth and then whip back and hit the other side. And he was just, you know, dumbfounded watching this unfold. And this, this went on for quite a while. I don't remember how many minutes the earth was moving around, but it went on for a substantial amount of time to make someone wonder if they're going to survive. Um, after the earthquake stopped shaking, uh, what few phone lines we had connecting our town to the outside world had been... Um, upper earth, you know, the telephone poles had fallen over. So my dad had no way of calling the little local general store to find out if our family had survived. And my mother's mother was living in Arizona at the time, and she had no way of knowing for about two weeks if we had survived. Um, the 64 earthquake was big media coverage in the lower 48, which is what we call the continental United States. And it was an extremely stressful time for my grandmother. Just there were loss of life for sure in our in our state, but we came through just fine. And um, that is my memory of the '64 uh, earthquake. And thank you for letting me share that with you. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it, and I will see you guys next time when I will be back with another tale of murder and deceit. Thank you.